this is the best price I can get for you. Well, I might be able to do a little bit better if I go in the back and talk to my manager and see what he thinks about it. Hold on, give me a minute. Um, I got a good price for you. No, I don't. It's all a lie. My name is Phil. This is The Lip. Hello, everyone. It's Phil, and here's a new episode of The Lip. I got one for you that I can certainly say I've been struggling with. Here it is, December, and my initial thought process was to do this episode sometime in August. However, when I looked at the the notes that I had jotted down for this episode, I didn't really feel comfortable with going through with it. Now, in the previous segment, I was saying a few things, and those things are stuff that I've said a bunch of times to a bunch of people, and all of it certainly was not entirely accurate, or another word for it would be truthful. Um, This subject is one that's kind of sore for me, and I think it's not because, well, it is. It's really kind of getting under the hood of the auto industry a little bit. From my perspective, I'm not going to say that it's like that 100% of the time, but I can certainly say that the auto industry is a little bit dirty at times, more so than the grease on the mechanic's hands. It can definitely be something that it's a little treacherous for people. And for sure, the name of the game is to make money. Now, I know that I've listened to a lot of wrestling interviews that they call shoots. And those interviews, the wrestlers will tell you exactly how they felt in a moment, exactly what they were doing at the particular time that they were doing it. And for the most part, they're honest with how they looked at the situation at the time. Now, on this particular episode, I'm going to kind of do a shoot as well. Consider that I still have some friends in the auto industry, and I trust them, and because I worked with them, I would be able to get certain things worked out for me that, let's just be honest, the average consumer probably wouldn't be able to get. Now, is it because the average consumer doesn't really understand the industry? Yeah, in truth, it really is. Because, just like anything else, the auto industry is really in it to do one thing, like any other business, and that's make money. Now, If you have friends in the auto industry, they're going to take care of you a little bit. And I've had that very same instance as well. And during that time, I got was able to get some things on a much bigger discount than you might have if, let's just say, you weren't me and you walked into a shop and you needed something fixed on your vehicle. I can certainly say that not everyone in the auto in the auto industry is a liar. It's cheat, but I can certainly say that 
when I got home from being a service manager, I needed to take a shower from time to time. And a lot of the work that I did while in that position of service writer or service assistant manager or shop manager, I certainly felt a little dirty after a while. And admittedly, that definitely helped me make the decision to leave the industry. Although, if I had no other choice, I would enter the industry again and be able to do those same things over again with the experience that I've gathered. Now, I am qualified to talk about this subject on a number of levels, which I'll get to once we get the main events up and running. But for certain, like I said, this is December now, and I've been going back and forth with myself about doing this topic since August. And I finally think I can do it and make it both interesting and as pain-free as possible. Ding, ding, ding. Main event time. Subject, my automotive experience and expertise, for lack of a better word for it. Now, I have a few other subjects that I have on my docket that I plan on doing, and I have people who are experts in those particular subjects. And this is the first time that I'm actually doing a subject that has an expert in the particular area of the topic and just so happens that the expert of this topic happens to be me and so the first thing that I would ask the person who is going to be in the other subjects that I have is to explain their level of expertise in the matter as far as the auto industry goes I am going to give you my credentials and here they are I went to Lincoln Tech for Automotive and studied there for a year and graduated. I then had, and that was in 2009. Even before graduating, I got my first job in a shop as in a position called installer, which would have been me putting in batteries, changing tires and oil. Not long after that, I ended up taking a test in the state of Pennsylvania and becoming a safety inspector for automotives, meaning I was able to do inspections for vehicles on the safety side. I didn't have my emissions license, but I did in fact have the license in order to do an, a safety inspection for a vehicle in Pennsylvania few years later, I ended up taking what would be the industry standard test called ASC. What is ASC? The National Institute for Automotive Service Excellence. And they cut it down for short as ASC. Those are the tests that a person who is in the auto industry, not just a mechanic, you can be a parts person, you can be a service writer or manager, as well as a mechanic. 
And these are the industry standards for, well, for back of, lack of a better term, excellence, meaning that you understand what is going on in the auto industry. Now, I was able to take two of those tests for both brakes and steering and suspension. I failed the brakes, but I still know how to do a brake job. But that doesn't mean that I have gotten the industry standard. However, in steering and suspension, I did in fact pass the test and was certified as an ASC person in steering and suspension. And I made sure to use that to allow people to know that when I speak, as far as it goes for tires, power steering, axles, tie rod ends, struts, um, shocks, alignments, I was officially an expert at that. Um, since the time that I have been working in shops, I have not followed up and continued with those credentials, neither my inspection license nor the steering and suspension. However, I did in fact have those credentials. So between those credentials and my graduation from Lincoln Tech Auto Institute, I am qualified to speak on this matter. Not to mention that I was in the industry for seven years working on cars and in the shop itself as a service writer or manager in the shop. So, to go through this, I can tell you that the auto industry is very interesting. I'm going to start with that. Now, one of the first things I try to tell everybody when you go into a shop, and this is the way that I handled it, because it's what I did. So I can certainly say when a person walked into the shop and they came up to me when I was at the front desk, without question, the first thing that would come to mind is I want to make as much money off of this person as possible. So I need to hear what their problem is. Once a person tells me what's going on with their vehicle to the best of their understanding, and I do stress that, the best of their understanding, they can come up to me at the desk and say, well, I hear a noise under my hood. Okay. Sometimes they'll say, what could it be? And my answer flat out will be, I couldn't tell you. I'd have to bring it into the shop and have my guy look at it. Sometimes they get upset about that. Sometimes they understand it. And then you write up the ticket and you send it to the back. Other times they'll say, well, I was driving my car and I hit something. And now it doesn't quite steer right. Now, from my perspective, if I'm to hear that, knowing that I have an expertise in steering and suspension, the first thing that I would tell that person is, okay, I have these particular credentials in steering and suspension. I am an ASE certified mechanic in that. So once the mechanic tells me what's going wrong with your car, I have the expertise to explain it to you. And I can promise you that between the mechanic in the shop and myself, we can diagnose what your problem is. 
then a person would hand me the keys and they would send it to the back. Now, in order to give you a context of just how it kind of works, using that first example, somebody said they hit something with their car when they were driving down the street and they heard the noise and they brought it to me and I told them about my credentials and I sent the ticket in the back. Now comes the perspective of the mechanic a little bit. I would then give it to somebody who I feel could do the job, first of all, depending on the shop that I worked at, which I'm not going to be at liberty to discuss what shops I worked at. I did work in certain shops where I worked with master techs. In fact, I've worked with four master techs and several excellent mechanics who had ASEs of their own. Now, in order to make the level of master tech, those ASEs that I talked about, you would have to pass eight of them in particular in order to become a master tech. And once you've gotten to that level, you essentially are as good as it possibly can get. Not to bore you with all the different tests that these mechanics would have to take, but I can certainly assure you that some of those tests, for example, I already told you about steering and suspension, which I had. Brakes is one of them as well. There's an engine test. There is also a test for both types of transmission, both automatic and manual, and a couple others. There's electric. There's electrical, which is also a test. There's one for air conditioning as well. I know I'm missing one because I like to ad-lib, but I want to get back to my example. After I gave the ticket to the person who I felt could do the job, I would then wait for that person to evaluate the vehicle to the best of their ability. Now, again, in this example, I'm talking about a steering and suspension issue, which I am an expert in. So the first thing that would happen is after the mechanic or tech, if it was the master tech, I always cautioned under the side, under the side of that person has a lot more experience than I have. So they're going to tell me what's wrong with it. And I'm simply going to sell what they tell me. Nothing more, nothing less. They're the master tech. They have the highest skill level. I'm just a guy selling the job. End of story. If it's somebody who is not a steering and suspension ASE certified person, after they give me their ticket, I'll look at it, and then I will make sure that the customer, who hopefully is waiting in the, in the office, will actually see me go in the back and look at what the person wrote on the ticket. Even though I am certified in ASE in steering and suspension at the time, I would then take a look at the vehicle and not to necessarily say that I'm not going to trust the person who's doing it because I gave the person a job because I trust them to do it, but because I have the expertise, I would just like to go in the back and just um, look at the vehicle as well. And that person would then just tell me, okay, this is what it needs. And I'm going to go through an example. They're going to tell me that this vehicle has a bent tie rod end, which is a part that connects to the tire. And because of that, the person needs to have the tie rod end replaced. And it's just one on the 
outer side. So it's not too difficult a job to pull off. But in the process of checking out a vehicle, anytime you go to a shop, they're going to also look at other little things like air pressure. They're going to check your lights, make sure they're all good. They're going to even check your oil to see if it needs to be changed. And so for this example, I went out there, I saw the bent tie rod end. I understand how bad it is. I then look at the tires and I see how they look. And if a tire, for example, is less than 230 seconds, that tire is technically no good and should be replaced. If the tire is between 230 seconds and, let's say, 4 or 530 seconds, it's getting pretty close. And now, knowing that the tire rod end is bent in this example, and I like to make sure that I'm stressing that this is simply an example, that's going to create a condition that's going to wear the tires down if the tie rod end does get replaced from a customer's perspective they're going to also need an alignment and so after seeing this i would then go back up to the front and speak to the customer after i looked at the vehicle itself i would then before talking to the customer i would then look at my computer and find out what would be both the labor rate for the particular job that they're asking for and all the things that I noticed. And I would then look for the parts. If it's something that in the last couple shops I worked in, we didn't have parts in the back other than some oil filters, some wiper blades anything like a tie rod and I would have to go out to one of the um, one of the parts suppliers that we used and I would call them up and ask them if they had the part and how much the part would cost and this is where the murky waters of service writing and shop industry come from I've used this example to tell a lot of people and what I would do is typically make these phone calls away from the customer before um, going up to the customer and telling them what's wrong. I would go and talk to my supplier and say, hey, this is a X, Y, and Z vehicle, and I need a tie rod end for it. The part supplier would then tell me, I've got the part, and I can charge you a couple different prices because I have some that are more and some that are less. They would then tell me a price. We'll just use the example. The tie rod end that they could sell me is $9. And I say, okay, that's, a, that's all right. I'll pay the $9 from the shop. That's cool. No problem. So I'll tell them to, um, to hold it for me. Then I'll go and I'll look for the labor rate of how many hours it would require the industry says that it would take to complete the job and we usually use all data or one of the other um, information websites to determine exactly labor and even instructions on how to put the parts in but Typically, as a service manager or writer, the only thing that I would do is 
look for what the labor is. And for different vehicles, the labor is going to be different. So for this example, the labor would be, let's say, three hours to change the tie rod in. Because not to bore you with the details, in order to change the tie rod in, the first thing that would have to happen is you have to take the tire off and you have to disassemble the hub from the tie rod in order to remove it. And that could take a little bit of time because when it comes to steering and suspension components, any of that stuff, axles, shocks, struts, those kind of parts are underneath the car and they're not directly exposed to the top elements, but they're exposed to anything underneath. Say, when you drive through puddles, when you, um, in the snowy weather, you can have ice and salts from the ground getting under there, and these things can make removing parts like a tie rod end a little more difficult. So, the three-hour window is potential in the worst-case scenario by the industry standard, let's say. And the shop has a labor rate, a price that we charge per hour of labor and this labor rate let's just say for purposes of this example is a hundred dollars it makes it easier it's a nice round number a hundred dollars per hour okay so now i know that i have to charge this customer for this particular job one hundred dollars for the labor and the part is nine dollars now, in order for me to make any money in the shop, I then have to use what is the ultimate evil term in any industry, but it's the one that makes all businesses money, and that's markup. And this is where the auto industry can get a little dirty, because markup is what kills you. Now, a lot of ways, the markup is really the thing that generates a lot of money for the shop. But the labor does as well. Before continuing, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the labor. There's two ways that the mechanic is going to be getting paid, and all of those ways directly come from labor. Now, the first part of it is that everybody in the shop has an hourly rate. Now, that hourly rate is could be any number and let's say that this mechanic that I'm working with is just a mechanic he's not a master tech he is a qualified capable mechanic and he's making I'll give him the rate that I made at one point I made $16 an hour as a mechanic and so does this person that I'm talking about in this example now in certain shops I worked at, the mechanic would just simply make $16 an hour, and that's the way it goes. Every eight the time that that person's in the building, the clock starts, he gets 18 hours. He gets, rather, he gets eight hours in the day, or more, depending on how long the shop's open, but he's only going to make that $16 an hour. Now... Another way that a mechanic can get paid, and I've worked in a few shops that use this as well, and typically, if you're only making $18 an hour or $16 an hour, 
that's just a regular hourly rate. And in the shops that I worked in where mechanics were making that much or even less sometimes, there was a simple explanation. They just made that money. But the other type of way that a mechanic can be paid is called flat rate. Now, this is a way that you can really make a lot more money, and I worked in a few shops like that in both capacities. I worked in the front desk, and I also worked in the back, actually working on the cars for flat rate. Now, flat rate is good and bad at the same time. Now, you see that guy who's making $16 an hour. I should have used 10 in order to make the example work a little easier. In fact, I'm going to change it to 10 in order to make it make more sense. The numbers will be easier. That guy who makes $10 an hour is getting $80 a day. Doesn't matter if he gets no cars coming through the shop. As long as he clocked in, that's what he's getting. Now, the flat rate mechanic who's making $10 an hour doesn't get a single penny until a car shows up. Now, generally speaking, there's a shop price that you're just going to get paid if you don't get that money. It's going to be typically, a lot of times, it could still be that $10 an hour depending on the shop you work at. And that's just what it is. But for your flat rate mechanic who comes in at that price, he will then have the ability to make even more money because of the labor. Now, what would happen to the job in our example is this particular labor rate is going to be $100 an hour. And this tie rod end job is going to take... The, they say that it's supposed to take, by the industry standard, three hours. Now, I've done tie rod ends hundreds of times at this point. Most of them I could do in my sleep. In the perfect world, it shouldn't take more than half an hour to do the tie rod end. And then, whenever you do a steering and suspension component, you really need to give the car an alignment. And usually there's an hour of labor associated with an alignment. So technically speaking now, this person should be able to do an alignment in probably half an hour. Okay? So now, the labor that this mechanic is going to be working for is one hour for the alignment, three hours to put in the tie rod end. And so, this mechanic will then be able to make $40 in this example because he's getting paid his $10 an hour for his labor. Now, this whole job, like I said, it shouldn't take you more than maybe half an hour in order to do the tie rod end and put it back, remove the tie rod end and replace it. And then do the alignment shouldn't take you more than another half an hour. So that particular mechanic can get his 40 hours, his $40 in just one hour. And he still has three hours to kill. He doesn't have to work, but he's still going to get paid because it's a flat rate. 
he's going to get paid that $10 an hour, no matter how long it takes him to finish the job. And that's really where the story kind of ends for that mechanic. Now, we haven't agreed to the customer to do the job yet. I just now have found out that this guy is going to absolutely be doing, if he gets the job, he's going to be given an alignment and he's going to be given the tie rod end and I'm going to charge him for a minimum of $400 because of the labor on the tie rod end and on the alignment. Now, I already told you that I went to the back and I called my part supplier and he told me that the tie rod end itself is going to cost $9. So, of course, I need to make some money on that for my shop. So, I'm going to do the honorable thing and mark up that tie rod end to probably $75. Yeah, sounds pretty dirty, right? I paid 9 but I'm going to charge this customer 75 That's the game. So now I've got my price point. I'm going to walk up to the front, and I'm going to tell this customer that parts and labor... I had a quick knock at the door. I'm back now. Where was I? Yes. I found out that the tie rod end is $9.00. And I'm going to mark it up to 75 The labor is going to end up being $400. Now, the alignment is going to cost 75 as well. So, I'm going to walk up to that customer who's anxiously awaiting to see what, for, excuse the pun, what the damage is. And I'm going to tell that customer that between parts and labor... I'm going to charge you five hundred five hundred one more time five hundred fifty dollars. Now, the first thing that every customer tells me as soon as I give them a number of $500 or more, and that's pretty specific. Usually it's numbers that are $500 or more. Occasionally it'll happen at the $300 level, but almost certainly $500 or more. They look at me and they say, and it doesn't matter who it is, is that the best price you can give me? And of course... The answer to that is no. And this is where the games begin. Because I can definitely do better than $500 and $525, rather, excuse me, $550, which is the number. I have a little bit of wiggle room here. And so does every single service writer or manager who you talk to when it comes to the price. Now, there are two things that I or any individual can do. One, without question, as somebody who used to work in the shop, I refused to do. 
under any circumstance would never happen. And that is the labor. I will never, ever, ever, ever compromise on labor. Now, granted, the person in the shop who's working on a car only gets a percentage of that $100. And like I had already said, they're going to end up working on a labor of four hours. And their $10 an hour comes out of that $100. The rest goes to the shop. But at a principle, I know that the labor absolutely is the key factor in paying a flat rate mechanic. I had it. So for the person who's working in the front to adjust the labor effectively is affecting the money of the person who's working on a car. So for me being what I always said was the shop Lorax, I speak for the techs. I would never under any circumstance adjust the labor. And unfortunately, in the different shops I've worked at, the possibility is there because the way the computer systems are set up, you could add labor if a job required it, or you could actually remove labor. And I never, ever, ever under any circumstances remove labor. That was staying right there. Because like I said before, that's what pays the mechanics and I'm not gonna mess with it. All day long, I can adjust the parts. Again, the example I gave when I talked to my part supplier, he told me that the tie rod end only costed me $9, or I should say only costed the shop $9. And I chose to charge the customer 75. I could have made that number anything I wanted. If I really wanted to, I could have made it $10. Nah, not at all. My goal here is the same goal as most of the other service writers service managers have and that is to make money particularly when there's a bonus aspect on the line and for me there was so the more money we make the better bonus we got so what i would tell this customer is one of three things one of three things and it depended upon the situation and that's where it kind of gets a little dirty. Now, situation number one. I tell the customer the same number, the $550, and the customer replies with that same question. Is there anything you can do for me? Uh, that's a lot. I don't know if I can handle that. The first thing I'll say is, well, let me see what I can do on the parts. The labor is immovable. That's just what we charge, and I can't do anything with that. But the tie rod in itself is 75, so I might be able to do some work with that. And, of course, in my mind, I already have a magic number in my head. Now, the only reason that I obviously throw $75 out there is to see if the customer will bite. And if they will, I win. I got a $9 part sold for $75, 100% win. But if the customer has a little bit of flack with it, which this particular customer in this example does, I'll say, I think I might be able to adjust it a little bit. Let me see what I can do with my computer. And I'll just sort of look at the numbers, knowing that I 
pretty much manually put in the 75, and I could manually put in any other number I want, even a zero. Hmm. But look and behold, I could actually work it out so that I could make that tie rod end come down to $60. How about that? The customer typically looks at me and says, wow, all right, that's it's better than 75. I guess I'll take it. And usually that's the scenario that would work out in scenario number one. And that happened a lot. Scenario number two. One that you've probably heard in both a shop and in the auto industry when you're going to buy a car. I guarantee you've heard this. And it's also a tactic that I and many other service writers, managers use. Same scenario. $575. I don't know what I can do for you. I'm really strapped. This is as much as I can do. I can't really figure out anything to make it go lower. Let me go in the back and talk to my manager because he's back there. Maybe we can work something out. Now, under this circumstance, the customer will use like, cool, that's great. Now, remember, I don't have to adjust the labor in any way. But consider the fact that my guy is going to make his $10 an hour off of four hours worth of labor. I can then say, okay... I'm going to go back there and talk to my manager and see what we can do. And what typically will happen is, in the shops that I worked at, there was usually me and another assistant manager and then the overall store manager. And I would go in the back, out in the shop, and the scenario happened over and over and over again. I would go and talk to them, and would we be talking about lowering the price? Absolutely not. My number is still going to be $75, but he's not going to bite. And so I might move that sliding scale down to, say, 60 or even maybe even make it 50 And that's where I'm going to stand in my mind. I'll make it 50 That's the number I really want to sell the guy at, the tie rod end for $50. But I went and told him I'm going to go talk to the manager. So I go back for five minutes and I just say, to my peers, the other assistant manager and the store manager, and we would talk about what we're going to have for lunch that day. Most of the time, that's what we did. And a couple times, we actually ordered lunch while waiting a few minutes in order to make the customer think that we're debating whether or not we're going to lower the price. And in fact, a couple times, we definitely ordered lunch. Um, we actually ordered pizza <laughs> while waiting for the guy well, the guy is up there frantically waiting about finding out how much money he's going to actually end up having to spend. Now, consider this scenario that I'm giving you is not real, but I have actually ordered pizza while talking to my other managers in order to sort of pretend that we're talking about the price. After the scenario is over, I then walk up to the front again, and I tell the customer, well, after talking to my manager... He said that I could get away with getting this particular price for your tie rod end. That 75, I can lower it down and I can make it 50. And usually the person's like, wow, that's great. You took $25 off. Cool. I'll take it. No problem. 
didn't mess with my labor. Tie rod end only costed $9. I'm still making $41 on the tie rod end, plus everything else is labor. Shop wins. I win. Scenario number three. This one's probably my favorite. And again, you probably could get that to work with you if you went to a, a place to buy a car as well. Sometimes this will happen there just as easily as it will inside of a shop. So be wary whenever you go to either one. Ugh, boy, I can't believe I'm letting you hear all this stuff. I feel like that guy who wore the mask and he was showing people how magic tricks were done. But anyway, scenario number three. I then have my other assistant manager who's working with me. He's also at the front. I present the customer with a price of $550 for the whole thing. And now I'm hard pressed and I am not going anywhere. The situation is good cop, bad cop. And I've played that very frequently with one of my peers in management. And I believe we were very good at it. We worked it at least three times a week. And this is one that we made a lot of money with for certain. And it'll happen in shops if you see two service writers up front, one of them either not doing anything. A lot of times the scenario will immediately happen. We kind of had a bit of a code for it. And that code is exactly what I said. Um, I got the price. This is what it is. I can't really budge on it. It's $550. There's nothing I can do. And now, as I say that, my other assistant manager hears it because that's kind of the code word. I can't do anything for you. And then he'll come over and he'll say, let me see that for a second. And he'll look at the computer and he'll cut it down and he'll be like, oh, how about that? I can make it, I can take off this tie rod and I can take off $25 or he'll say, I'll take off $15, whatever. Either make it $60 tie rod end or a $50 tie rod end. And he's engaging the computer with the customer in front of me. And I'll look at it at the same time and I'll be like, are you sure we could do that? And of course he's like, yeah, 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 we could do this. We can work with this. Okay, cool. All right, we got you covered and we're going to charge you this. And the customer is usually happy to hear that. And they're like, oh, that's so great. That's so great. And they leave. Meanwhile, we still win. We could have charged you a lot less, but we still win. Because now comes the best part. Remember how I told you that putting on the tie rod end could only take half an hour in the perfect world. Let's say there's no issues and it can be pulled right off in half an hour. And then my tech can put it on the alignment rack and get it fixed. I tell the customer, okay, the labor is going to be about four hours. So we're going to need at least that length of time in order to get it done. Um, can you leave it with us? Those are words that if you hear those words, I promise you, I promise you, they're trying to get your business for a while. And I've gotten to say that a lot of times. 
I've said it when there was when we were busy, and I've said it when we were dead. Can you leave it with us? It's going to take us a while to do it. And so the customer most of the time will say, yeah, I can leave it with you. They get a ride or they leave, they go somewhere else. It's going to be four hours before it's done or backed up. It could take you five hours because there's a couple other things going on. Now, I know that this mechanic doesn't have anything else to do except for that tire rod, and it's going to take him an hour to do it. So, I also know that my supplier can get me that tie rod end in probably half an hour. So, the first thing that'll happen is my mechanic will already take off the tie rod end and he'll just have it waiting. And usually, when my supplier told me it was going to take a half an hour, he usually would be able to get it to me in 20 minutes. So, now my mechanic gets the part, puts the part on takes them ten minutes to put the tie rod in on because he already took everything apart. Puts everything back together and there you go. It was a total of half an hour for him to do it. Plus we had to wait the twenty minutes in order to get the part. So now we're talking about fifty minutes. Then he puts it up on the alignment rack. Does the alignment. Gets it done faster than expected because everything was loose he loosened up everything he he oiled up the other side so he could actually make all the adjustments and make it so much faster so he finishes the alignment in 15 minutes so now it took him from start to finish an hour and 15 minutes to complete the job i pause because this is where we kind of get a little dirty now what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell that mechanic to push this thing out, take it out, let it sit there, give me the keys. I'm going to hold on to the keys up in the front because it's only been an hour and 15 minutes. The customer's been gone and the car is done. Told him it was going to take four, five hours to finish it because we had some stuff in front of him. My guy's going to bring something else in and he's going to start working on it. So let's say he's going to do a brake job, oil change, whatever, doesn't matter what it is. I'm going to wait another 45 minutes. Now it's going to be two hours. And I'm going to call this customer. And I'm going to let him know, hey, it's great news for you. My guy got it done really fast. It's cool. It's done. I looked at it. It's complete. Drove it myself. Sometimes I did. Sometimes I didn't. Everything's good. You can pick it up. The customer is usually completely overjoyed because they're expecting to have to wait half a day to get their car, and yet it's done much faster than they anticipated. So now, I'm a superhero. <laughs> I'm literally a superhero. I just made this person's day because instead of having to consider what they're going to do for the next three hours and wait for their vehicle to be done, now it's done. They come, they pick it up, they pay for it, they leave happy. I win. The general moral of the story is, if you go into a shop and the person at the desk tells you the price, there is room to negotiate. More room than you could possibly imagine. Now, having said that, I've also had some parts that I would get in from time to time that actually were pretty expensive.
and this is where I'm actually not being dirty. I've had parts come in for some exotic vehicles that I've worked on, uh, or been in the shop that we've worked on. Like, um, I've had in some shops I've worked at, I've had Maseratis, I've had Lotuses, I've had some Porsches. In fact, I've worked on a couple of cars that were of that ilk, um, and the parts are really expensive. Even some of the European stuff like BMW and Mercedes sometimes can be a little off-putting because of the price factor. And even brake job for a Volkswagen or an Audi. Now those vehicles, sometimes we couldn't even do them in certain shops that I worked in because Volkswagen slash Audi, same company, had this crazy thing with their brakes. And that is you needed to use an onboard computer in order to retract the piston, which holds the brake pads against the actual rotor. And if you didn't have that computer, you couldn't retract the, um, the piston, which held the, um, the brake pads in place. So sometimes we had to send it away in some of the shops I worked at. Other times when I worked in a building that had a master tech, he would possibly have that tool and be able to do it. And those particular jobs would be more expensive. And for those jobs, I would then throw in a little bit of labor because this guy has a tool that nobody else had. So he gets to benefit from that and he has the knowledge in order to do it. So that's how that would play out. And the last thing I want to go over on this particular show about the auto industry that I'm talking about is um, a story from one of the managers I worked with. It's a very good story and it's very telling about the whole process of labor. Now, it goes back some years for him because he was working as a mechanic himself. He wasn't actually in the shop anymore, like anymore when I was working with him. But at this particular stage, he was relatively young in his career. And he was working with an older mechanic. Now, this older mechanic had a lot of knowledge on older vehicles, needless to say. And this day, a gentleman came in from having his vehicle inspected, but the place that he had it inspected at couldn't actually help him because his vehicle failed emissions. And the vehicle he had was one that came with a carburetor. For those of you who don't know, a carburetor is non-existent in any vehicle from the moment that I'm broadcasting this podcast here in 2021 all the way up until all the way back until early 90s they stopped using um, carburetors so there's a good window of well over 30 years where people who were in the industry could very easily have never, ever, ever worked on a car with a carburetor. Now, this particular point in time, the manager that I worked with who was working with this older gentleman worked as a mechanic in the 70s. So he knew all about that stuff. He knew all about point systems. He knew all about carburetors, stuff that just is ancient history from today. If you showed some people who work in shops right now a uh, 
a carburetor, they'll think of it as a paperweight because they have no idea what it is. Guys who are a little younger than me in their 20s likelihood never have seen a carburetor before. So, to continue with the story, because I'm running a little long because this episode a little passionate for me. Now, I think I hear a car in the background, but that's okay. I'm talking about cars. <laughs> Guy comes into the shop where my former boss is at, and he tells my boss's boss that he needs his car to go through inspection, but the people he was at didn't know how to um, fix it. And this is out in the parking lot. Didn't even bring the car into the, into the shop. So, what the older gentleman did was, he popped the hood of the car, he pulled the screwdriver out of his pocket, looked at the carburetor, took the screwdriver, and adjusted the carburetor. Took him no more than 30 seconds. Opened up the door of the shop, pulled the car in, did the emissions test, it passed easily. Now, the older gentleman goes up to the guy and he says, well, that's going to be $50. The guy looks at him and is really confused. And he says, man, all you did was just take a screwdriver and turn one screw. And you're going to charge me $50 for it? Now, the older gentleman looked at the uh, guy who had the car and he said, well, I'm not charging you for turning the screw with my screwdriver here. What I'm charging you for is the fact that I knew which screw to turn. <laughs> and ultimately, that's my favorite story about labor, because truthfully, you're paying for somebody's knowledge. You're paying for somebody's tools. I mean, hey, if you knew which screw to turn, you could have just done it yourself, but you didn't. But he did. He spent the time to learn. And he actually had the ability to do it. And he knew exactly what he had to do. So that's what you're paying for. And trust me, that's really what it comes down to in a shop. You're paying for somebody's knowledge. And that's why when it comes to the people who are working on your cars, remember, man, they're not trying to do you dirty. They just want to get as many jobs in as they can and make as much money as they can as quickly as possible. Now, the people in the front sometimes they don't always have that same frame of mind. Some of them, like me, were in fact mechanics, and they take a little bit of sympathy on you, but still, at the end of the day, they want to make as much money as they can, and the way they do it is by selling the job, making sure the mechanic gets it, making it for as highest price as they possibly can. Other times, people just don't know, because they weren't in a shop, and they don't understand, and they don't put the price where it should be. Win some, you lose some. But at the end of the day, remember, the one thing I want you to take away from this episode is those scenarios as far as the price that you're paying when you go to a shop. If you see any of those three things that I told you, remember, everything's not what it seems. If you see the person tell you that, oh, maybe I can adjust the price, it's because they have a price already in mind, and they're going to charge you what that number is. And if you don't bite, they're just going to let you go. 
and you're going to go to another shop and somebody else is going to do the very same thing. Only they might charge you more. You just don't know. Scenario number two, if that person in the front desk walks away, guarantee he's not discussing your financial situation. It's real possibility he's talking about what he's going to get for lunch that day with his people in the back. So rest assured, the number that he had in his head when he first walked out there in the back talking to people, his quote unquote manager is the same price that he was going to tell you anyway. And the third scenario, which is my favorite, the good bad cop, just remember, if there's two of them up there and one says, hey, I can maybe work that around, I promise you that person is working hand in hand with the one who is not giving you a good price to eventually come up with a number that is going to benefit them both in the long run. Because when I did the good cop, bad cop with my guy, we knew that we were going to get a bigger bonus if we sold the job. So you put two and two together. We were working hand in hand, not to your benefit, but to ours. And on that note, I'm going to ring the bell. Main event is over. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, it's time for the spear of the week. Now I'm going to use the Wayback Machine for this particular spear because it goes back to the auto shop industry that I worked in. I can tell you that this person helped me become completely jaded and really, 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 really turned me into the point where I was extremely effective at the bad cop position when me and my guy would go back and forth with it. Lady comes into my shop for an oil change, and her car had a bubble in the tire. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those. It's literally a, an indentation where the rubber stretches out because the belts inside have broken, and it creates, well, a bubble. Most of the time, those bubbles in the tire are maybe the size of maybe a marble. Sometimes a bigger one would be the size of a golf ball pretty significant thing. If you bump up against something, you're going to probably blow your tire out. And in that scenario, you really need a new tire because your tire is now, it's bad now. It needs to be replaced. This lady came in for an oil change and I noticed this tire had this bubble the size of a softball. Biggest one I'd ever seen on a car. Ever. And I, she had a little girl with her. And of course, I had my kids and my daughter, my two daughters and son. And I knew that that vehicle, especially as a safety inspector, was completely unsafe to drive. At any moment, she could hit a curb, she could hit a bump, and that tire's going to blow and she's going to have a problem. Now, the shop that I worked in at the time had a pretty significant bump if you're trying to exit. So, realistically, for her to try to leave... She was going to hit something that could easily have blown out that tire right in front of my shop. So, the good person that I was at the time, again, remember how I told you I could adjust prices on anything, and tires was one that we actually had in abundance in that particular shop, and I could adjust the price of a tire to a reasonable portion. And for this particular lady, I had the ability to actually tell her that I really didn't want her to leave with that tire the way it was. So I told her I would give her the tire for 
a lot lower. And I kept lowering the price, kept lowering the price. The tire I got for it was a cheap tire, really cheap. It was maybe a $90 tire. <clears throat> and I told her, for her vehicle, it's the cheapest one I had at the time. And I was not lying. I was telling her the absolute truth. And I told her she really needed the tire and she really needed it now. So she didn't want the tire. And then I kept lowering the price and lowering the price until the tire, I pretty much had it down to $50. And I told her, I'll even, you buy this tire for $50 and I'll give you the oil change for free, which was well within my authority. And finally, she said yes. Now her particular vehicle, like almost all the vehicles, has an ABS system, which is the braking system. And when you have the traction control and your tires are different tread thickness, it could set it off. And it just so happens that after putting the one tire on, I told her your other tire is not that great either, but it's not going to kill you like this one will. I strongly recommend you come back to me and I'll sell you the other tire. I'll hold it for you and I'll even sell it to you for the same price that I sold you this one for, which is $50, which is well below what I should have sold it for. She said, okay, thank you. I appreciate it. And she leaves. Two days later, she calls my district manager saying that her traction control light is on. I literally explained to her why as a steering and suspension ASE holder, I told her what was wrong with her car and I told her to come back and she insisted on not doing so. So she actually played me for a fool and got that other tire for free. So without a question, this lady deserves the spear of the week. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this show definitely ran longer than I expected it to, but like I said previously, it literally took me about four months to even decide to do it. I changed a, quite a bit of the things I was going to talk about. And once again, I'm going to use the pun, I really let you under the hood of what happens a lot of times in an auto shop. Um, wasn't very comfortable. And again, I felt a lot dirty after I left. And a lot of the reason why I left the auto industry was because... I was in the position to be a service writer, and boy, after a while, you just, it kind of wears on your soul a little bit if you're a good person. Um, but at the end of the day, I would certainly not have done it any other way, which is the sad part, because in order to get the customer to understand sometimes that, yeah, your tie rod end is bad and you need an alignment. I'm telling you that for your purposes and mine as well. We're both going to benefit from this, not even financially, because if you get the tie rod end and you don't get the alignment, it's going to wear out your tires and your car is going to ride funny and you're going to blame me. So rather than have you blame me for something that I told you was going to be a problem, why don't we just solve the problem and make everybody happy? You go away, you come back in oil change in three months, and we talk, and we're going to be, I guess you could say, we might necessarily be friends, but we'll certainly be on the first-name basis. Most of the time when I talk to somebody about a car when we were working in a shop, we didn't necessarily talk about the person's name. It was all about, oh, 
It was that blue Mustang. Oh, it was that red Honda Accord. Oh, it was that uh, blue F-150, whatever it was. Usually we identified the customer with the vehicle. But enough of this. I've run very long today. And I'm actually getting a little hungry, so I'm going to get something to eat. And I want to let you know, if you thought that this episode was interesting, let me know on my Twitter, which is PissedPhil2Ls, or on Instagram, PhilipHenderson5102. Always interested in comments. But on that note, I've got some words of wisdom And I do believe that they would go to that lady who earned my Spear of the Week this week. Because for certain, if I got to see this lady again in any context, be it inside of a shop or even if I saw her in a store, but I would have to tell you that I would look her in the eye and say, you know what, in order for me to get rid of my headache, you need to leave the room. Because without a doubt, she created a headache. And a headache lasted for probably six months. (laughs) Well, my name is Phil. This is The Lip. See you next time.